Hi, and welcome to Communicating Climate Change, a podcast dedicated to helping you do just that. I'm Dickon, and I'll be your host as we dig deep into the best practices, the worst offences, the pitfalls, and the paragons, always looking for ways to help you and me improve our abilities to engage, empower, and ultimately activate audiences on climate-related issues. This episode features a conversation I had with decorated scientist, consultant, and all-round gem of a human, Suzanne Moser, recorded in August 2022. It serves as a starting point for the series, taking a zoomed-out look at where we are right now and where we need to go. Susie's resume is long and distinguished, but some highlights include her roles as Social Science Research Fellow at Stanford University's Woods Institute for the Environment, as Staff Scientist for Climate Change at the Union of Concerned Scientists, and her contributions to several IPCC reports. Susie is the real deal. Her work focuses on equitable adaptation and transformation in the face of climate change, on climate change communication in support of social change, and decision support and the interactions between scientists, policymakers, and the public. She's also been responsible for a couple of influential books, including, not least, as co-editor of the groundbreaking anthology on climate change communication, Creating a Climate for Change, alongside Lisa Dilling. In fact, this book, which for context came out around the same time as An Inconvenient Truth, a time in which debates were focused more on whether climate change was real or not, rather than today's dilemma of figuring out what we should be doing about it, this book is exactly what led me to reach out to Susie in the first place, and as you'll hear, made a real mark on me. It also provided a perfect jumping off point for our conversation, which weaves through what's still missing in a lot of communication around climate change, what communicators could do differently, and how technology has changed the game. So without any further ado, let's get on with the show. This is Communicating Climate Change with Suzanne Moser. First of all, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. You've really sent me down a path, Susie. <laughs> that book, uh, your contributions and the contributions of all of the researchers and scientists in it, it kind of galvanized my certainty that this is the way that I should be applying Wonderful. myself. Well, that's in many ways, you know, what you can only hope for um, with any scientific contribution to inspire. So I'm very, very glad to hear it. It's been 15 years since Creating a Climate for Change was published, and yet we still seem to be struggling with many of the same barriers to progress on climate and social change issues. If the book came out today, what do you think would be different? What do we know now that we didn't know then? And what areas of focus might have made their way into the pages that weren't present in 2007? Yeah, such a good question. And I guess what I would start with is that, you know, the first thing that I think is different now is that we have a climate change communication field that we didn't have then, right? There are hundreds and I don't know, maybe thousands of people working on this topic. And so there's a lot more literature. There's a lot more specific research there. Um, and in many ways, you know, not only is that maybe an outcome of that early attempt that we started um, 15 years ago, but it's just recognizing the importance of it. Right back then, we were still like, "This is important. You have to pay attention and do this right." <laughs> now, at least people get that part. So maybe we don't have to do that persuasive task anymore. We have built a field, um, which is important. So we probably would look for 
the the best people who are now active in the field. Um, we have a lot more literature, but probably the most important thing I would say is that the context is different. We're doing this now where climate change action is even more urgent than it was in 2005, six, seven in that time. And, you know, just look outside the window or look into the newspapers um, in terms of what's going on right now with drought in China that is boggling the mind with floods in Pakistan that are, you know, boggling the mind. I mean, those are the things that we, in our imagination, put at the end of the century. And here we are, 15 years later on, they're already present. So in 2005, we were still trying to work on making it real for people, trying to get them to imagine this invisible thing. We don't have that task now. It unfortunately has become all too real. And that raises some issues more to the forefront than um, back in, in that time. Now we have to deal with people being overwhelmed by the sheer magnitude and, and awfulness of what's happening. And mind you, we're still only at 1.1 degree of global warming, right? So we're only at the beginning. So how to deal with the emotional onslaught relentless onslaught of this topic probably would be a bigger theme. My chapter back then was beware of, of forgetting about emotions in climate communication. Well, <laughs> that would be probably the central part, much more so than trying to explain the science or should we talk about weather or climate? You know, those kinds of issues, I feel like we've gone somewhat beyond. Um, and, and still, if you ask people, um, you know, can you actually explain the difference, you probably would have to start again um, at the beginning. I mean, it boggles the mind to me how even after 15, 20 years of trying to do climate communication, we're still having some of the same challenges. I think people understand at sort of a, a background level, like a contextual level, yep, there's this thing called climate change or global warming. But when you dig deeper, it's like, what is it what does it mean? How does it come about? People are still as superficially knowledgeable about that as back then. So some issues are the same that we would have to address, um, but the context, including the politicization, the polarization that, that has happened, certainly here in the, in the US, but in other places, we would have to spend more time on that and trying to understand and you know address, have something to say about it. The issue now being much more present and the, the impact simply present means we also have to talk about not just the communication of climate science, but of the solutions. What I would say is that the principles of good climate communication hold. And, and what we raised, I, I find it actually repeatedly astonishing that, you know, while we have inched sort of on opinion data and, and know a lot more a lot of the science that has come out has confirmed the basics of what we sort of came up with. And that's just the basic principles of good communication. So being very audience sensitive and trying to build trust and relationships so that um, people trust what you hear and can actually relate to what you hear. Um, thinking about what motivates the audience that you're talking to, dealing with the barriers they face 
um, in, in making a change in response to your communication. Those issues stand as solidly as back then. Well, maybe that leads on nicely to the next question, which is how in the first place can communication facilitate the social changes necessary to mitigate the worst effects of climate change? Well, I guess maybe the way I want to answer that, imagine we all couldn't speak. We had no ways of communicating, not even, you know, (laughs) non-verbally. Nothing would happen, (laughs) right? Communication, the exchange of information, whether it's persuasion or whether it is storytelling or in, you know, along the entire spectrum of things that we convey, um, emotions, impulses, whatever. If we didn't have that, nothing would move. To me, communication is the software to, if you will, the hardware of everything we might do in politics or in our households behaviorally or, you know, what happens between people. So you need communication to convey why an issue is important, what one can do about it, you know, why it's important to do it now versus another thing. It's absolutely essential. Um, and there are ways to do it better and worse. And we've done it worse for a long time. So <laughs> to me, this is, it's just simply, you can't get anywhere without communicating. And in fact, you might say communication in the um, diversity of ways in which we humans have developed is you know, a uniquely human thing. Not that other species don't communicate. In fact, we're learning so many things about how trees communicate, right? So it's it's not uniquely human, but we have developed an imaginal and, and abstract language that has enabled us to do what we do on the planet. Um, we wouldn't be here without it or be in this particular role that we humans have without it. Try making anything work without saying anything, and you'll know the answer to that question. I wanted to get to the bottom of how the social change that communication can stimulate actually works. Is there a hard or fast rule for it? Bottom up, top down, the power of the individual, or perhaps mass media? What are the patterns that take place in this curious and complex process? One of the things you might remember from the book is that we actually looked at change, social change at the individual level, at the organizational level, at you know, local government levels and higher up state, regional, federal, international, cultural um, levels of change. To get even to change, say, at the political level or at the cultural level, you must think about who are the key people who can make the relevant changes. Culture change often sparks from an individual or a small group of people offering something new, something, an innovation, right? That then begins to spread. Well, it doesn't magically spread. It is actually individuals helping to make that spread happen. And that happens by me talking to my neighbor and illustrating more importantly than talking, maybe illustrating that I'm living a different way. And it's like becomes the social norm and people look around like, Hmm, I guess that's how we are supposed to behave now. And, you know, then it becomes a social thing. And sooner or later, we get, you know, a much larger effect. Sometimes technology does that, you know, it begins with a tiny little thing in your hand. And all of a sudden, there are more iPhones, I think, than people right now in the world. So, you know, sometimes the inspiration for a culture-wide effect comes from 
different places, whether it's an individual, a political leader, a social movement leader, or a technology or a company for that matter. But you need the fabric to spread. And I'm not saying we need to only do this from the bottom up. Sometimes, you know, this is how we got to wearing seatbelts. It wasn't because there was this grand demand, uh, population-wide demand, or please give me a seatbelt. It was, you know, politicians, a very small handful of people deciding thou shalt wear a seatbelt. And that's how we changed eventually. So sometimes it's mandated. So I guess what I'm trying to say is when it comes to behavior change, I still think that the late Sharon Dunwoody, who unfortunately has now passed, she was absolutely right. In behavior change, it is far more important that you and I build a relationship and then, you know, you trust me, you think I'm doing the right thing and you will think about, oh, should I do that too? That is still the gold standard. And in any other level of change, you need individuals to move it. And that's where you get to the influencers. If you had a massive budget and could do mass media campaigns, great. But I will say the world of mass media is much changed from 15, 20 years ago, right? We don't have these sort of big monoliths anymore who all convey the same message to masses of people. It's much more siloed into small media audiences and often very siloed from each other. So it's, I think, gotten harder to run mass media campaigns because of that change in technology and, and the necessity to reach people in these much more diverse channels that we have now. You mentioned technologies and things like that. So I'll, I'll move on to the next question, which kind of deals with that. I want to dig deeper into what your thoughts are about the opportunities as well as the risks associated with this new uh, communication landscape and all of these platforms and places that people can go to get quote unquote news? Well, I think one of the ways to think about it is that some media platforms are um, the preferred ones for certain audiences. So one particular um, advantage and opportunity is to use certain channels like Instagram or Facebook, you know, whatever it might be at any one time. They have very different audiences and you can use a platform almost as a shorthand for how to reach and tailor your communication um, accordingly. So that's one opportunity. Um, the ability to connect with each other um, as we've seen in the youth climate movement, you know, which is like, I think almost 100% reliant on, on social media channels and, and particular ones, those ways of being able to connect and do so very rapidly are super helpful for movement building and for, you know, engaging people, staying up to date. And the risk right associated with that is the absolute overwhelmed by all the different things that you could possibly constantly have scrolling over your screen. It becomes very difficult if you have 0.3 seconds to get someone's attention. Like what can you actually say or how to say something in when the attention span and the, you know, <laughs> the swipe syndrome, whatever, just makes it nearly impossible to convey anything. Um, so it becomes very flashy. It becomes superficial in some ways. 
to be able to grab people. And I think we all tend to numb after a while of, you know, just imagine any 10 minute span in which you might scroll through your own, you know, social media. By that time, you're like, what did I read 10 minutes ago? You have no clue anymore, right? So memory is much shorter. Uh, you can't go deep. There's too much. You get go numb. I mean, all of these things make it much more difficult to actually stand out and and have a the in-depth conversation maybe we need sometimes to address some of the deeper issues. So it's very difficult. And of course, I already mentioned the sort of siloing the, you know, our tendency to go with what in technical jargon we call homophilous groups. In other words, with people who are like us, that can be a real asset in communication, you know, because you're more trusted when you're like the audience and you only talk to yourself. You only talk to people who think like yourself. You don't necessarily connect to people who have very different attitudes, opinions, concerns. And I think it, you know, we're seeing the results of that, which is we're more divided in many ways and much less able to come to some, not necessarily consensus, but at least agreement um, on how to move forward on action. So it can slow us down actually, you know, in, in other words, we can go really fast and yet we can't go anywhere. So it's, it's a very difficult um, and hard to predict sort of challenge that we now deal with, with social media. It helps in many ways and it hinders in so many others. As we rolled into the back half of our time together, I was keen to ask Susie some questions that would give listeners concrete actions to take in their own communications endeavors to really get into the good, the bad and the ugly of communicating climate change. So based on your wealth of knowledge on the subject, what's the single most important aspect of communication that practitioners should pay attention to in their work? I think the first thing that I would say to people is relationship. Communication is ultimately about making something common to people or, you know, a speaker, an audience, whatever it is. So it is about the relationship as, as the very foundation of succeeding with communication. I often do that in my trainings where I just basically ask people to, to think about how they would connect to another person. I sometimes um, say to people, come as a friendly communicator or come as a friend. How would you talk to someone if you were their friend? Before you say anything about climate change, you know, bring the bad news, tell people what to do or anything, you would first connect. How are you doing? How are your kids? Whatever, anything like that, right? And only then would you start to get into the topic. And we often skip over that first part, that relationship building part. You just don't get anywhere. It's much harder once you have a relationship to be nasty to each other. So, um, you know, the kind of contrarian exchanges, climate skeptics, deniers, whatever, you know, partly if we ever sat down with them and connected on a human to human level, I wonder um, whether it would still be as hostile as the communication often is. So that would be my first thing. Beyond that, I don't know, so much flows from having a, a human connection. These days, I think that connection will quickly lead to people telling you almost like behind the, their hand in whispered tone, how afraid they are or how worried they are, how sad they are. So 
if we are in that emotional space around climate change, it is, I think, essential to validate that and to normalize in the sense of, yeah, that's a, that's a healthy reaction to a really dysfunctional situation and help people understand that they're not alone in that. We are so lonely in our climate change worries and then help people translate their worry, their feelings, their sadness into action, as opposed to get stuck in, you know, paralyzed in, in the emotion, but, but really help them move. How do you translate that that deep motivation of from the heart into something you do out in the world. And as I always teach people, it's probably at this point more important to teach social change than to teach climate change. How do we make change? Most people don't know how policies get made. Most people don't know how organizations or businesses or financial markets or anything works to, to affect our daily life, right? Where can they fit in? Where is their place of entry? Um, and so it that's where most of my focus is these days. Tell me what you're good at, what you love doing, what really sustains you, and I'll tell you how that is helpful for climate change. Pretty much a lot of things are. That was a really wonderful answer. Really wonderful. It reminded me actually of um, a pretty good study that Cialdini did actually about competing football teams I think they were kids it was like Lord of the Flies you know they were warring tribes and then they shared a task that they had to complete together and hey presto they learned that they were all very very similar had similar interests and they were friends by the end of it and they had also completed <laughs> a common task <laughs> yeah exactly I think we will have to learn it. You know, I was always very skeptical of the name calling and the blaming aspect in um, particular uh, communication from the left, because in the end, you know, the floods are going to come to your town and you're going to have to work with the person that was on the opposite end of the spectrum, um, you know, getting people to safety or have to share water when you don't have much or, you know, whatever the case may be, right? How do you do that after you just completely trashed somebody? I think we ought to be very careful. A little more kindness, I think, doesn't mean you can't be fierce, but you don't have to trash people. And of course, on the right, you know, what we've seen, I mean, are truly horrific attacks on, on climate scientists and uh, climate activists. I mean, including, including hate mail and, and threats to life. That's unacceptable, right? So kindness from both sides would get us probably a lot further. The, uh, the kind of sister piece, I suppose, to the last question is, what's the biggest mistake that scientists, communicators, policymakers uh, make when attempting to engage the public on climate change issues? Well, there are a series of those mistakes. Um, some communicators still seem to be <laughs> immune to what we've been saying for 20 years, which is that the information deficit model isn't working. In other words, just giving more information will not make a lot of people change what they do. Some people ignore the emotional impact of what they're saying. You have just shocked people out of their mind and they have gone numb and they cannot hear you anymore. They simply will not do anything because you've just, just scared them. 
so much the sheer overwhelm of like, just keep on going all the time with the worst news possible. We just can't take it, right? Uh, we humans need to have a way of processing what's happening and we don't make space for that. So sometimes a, a mistake in communication is to talk all the time and not listen, uh, not make space for silence, not make space for just taking in what was just said. Might be way more rhetorically, way more impactful to let things sink in. Um, and then of course the perpetual problem is that people are still either not talking enough about the solutions very concretely, or they do it in such superficial and, and generic ways that people still don't know, how do I, how do, I do that? You know, it's, yes, I get I'm supposed to have solar panels on my roof, but how do I deal with the money side of this? Where do I go? Who do I ask? What's a good company? to put them on my roof. I mean, those are, you know, levels of effort that most people don't have either the resources or the time for. And so we must unravel and, and unveil how to make those changes happen, whether it's politically or, or individually. What exactly do you want me to do? I don't care. Okay. I got climate change is bad. I don't want to know. I don't want to get a PhD in climate science, but what do I need to do? You just told me do solar panels or drive less. Well, how am I going to get to work? You know, those are just still the, the struggles, right? And so unless we are much more specific and really address the barriers people face to enacting the changes we want them to make at any of those levels we're talking about, we just scared them without, you know, really doing much. I, I continue to think that we have two reactions to scary news or, or very impactful, powerful news. Either we, we act on it, right? If I'm scared to death, but what you just said, okay, I'm going to do something to reduce the risk of having to face that, or I'm going to reduce the feeling about that. And that means numbing. I just will change the channel. I'm going to just shut down because I cannot hear anymore. So which of those two paths can you lead people down? If you want people to act on the risk information you just gave them, you got to help them reduce the risk, not just overwhelm them and reduce the feeling about the risk, right? So what specifically do you want people to do? Any communication in 2022 that doesn't do that, I think is a failed communication. Well, there you have it. What were your main takeaways? What will you be applying in your own communications endeavors? There was plenty to sink your teeth into. For me, it's all about providing concrete actions for people to take and not simply ringing the alarm bell louder and louder, something I'm sure I've been guilty of in the past, but instead providing step-by-step -step actions towards real and achievable solutions. And that means imagining solutions in the first place, something that often seems to be missing, as well as then guiding audiences on how to get there. So that's what I'll be focusing on, but how about you? Thanks to Susie Moser for taking the time to share her extensive knowledge and experience with the show. You can find links to Susie's website and some relevant publications and resources in the show notes. Thanks also to you for listening to Communicating Climate Change. You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts, or by subscribing so you don't miss a beat. I'll be covering a wide range of topics with upcoming guests, discussing anything from greenwashing and disinformation to behaviour change, the role of the arts, and communication's place in activism. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Each and every episode attempts to add to our toolkit to help us develop the muscles we'll need for this grand task. So be sure to stay tuned for more. 
For anything else, just head over to communicatingclimatechange.com. Until next time, take care.